Greetings and welcome. My name is Mike Bankhead. I am your host. I am a bass player and songwriter from the Jam City, Dayton, Ohio. My guest today, well, this is my first Iranian guest. That's right. Her name is Nora Rahimian, out of Los Angeles currently. And this is one of the most fascinating individuals I have met in my entire life. And I am glad to introduce them to you here on the You Could Be My Aramis podcast. Enjoy. Hey there, Nora. And guest. I don't Uh see the guest. Oh, the guest is, um, do you want me to grab him? Yeah, this won't take long, right? Hold on, let's grab him. Push him. Everybody wants to see you. Oh. Oh, big boy. This is guest. So, Nora, how about you introduce yourself and push? (laughs) Um, my name is Nora Rahimian. My pronouns are they, she, and I am an anti-capitalist business coach. I'm also the CEO of Culture Fix, co-producer of Dead Music Fest, and co-host of Office Hours with Nora and Stowe. And um, this cutie that you all get to see is Push, my four-year-old French bulldog and source of joy in my life. Your elevator pitch is well-tuned. It seems <laughs> like you've said that a lot. Well, that's professional. You are living proof that people on Twitter are real because I discovered you on Twitter and then we, you and me and Push hung out in real life briefly a few months ago. That was pretty cool. We met in real life and I, listen, I love, okay, all the like, you know, Elon Musk stuff aside, Twitter as a platform really has been where I've met some of the best people in in my world, collaborators, friends, colleagues. Um, and I think when you like put the social and social media, it puts good people in your space. It can, like any technological tool, it could be used for good or for evil. Yes. Right. So you are a fascinating individual. And first of all, you are, you speak multiple languages. Which ones do you speak and why do you speak them? Let's start there. Because I'm a language nerd. Um, right. Cause you speak like a million languages, just three. Um, my first language was Farsi. Then I learned English. Um, I learned Spanish because I was the only Persian kid in my neighborhood. And so everyone around me spoke Spanish. And so that's how I learned Spanish. And then I, I lived and worked in Spanish speaking countries. Um, I learned Liberian English living and working in Liberia. And now I'm learning American sign language and French. That's awesome. Since Farsi is your first language, this means you were probably born in Iran. I was born in Iran. How much of it do you remember? Um, I have, I mean, I was very young. I was two and a half when we we left as refugees um, of the U.S. instigated Iran-Iraq war. I have kind of like visceral memories, emotional memories, um, but I don't really remember much. I don't remember much of that war either. I read about it. You know, I was born in 77 and that's an 80s thing. But I, of course, I read about it afterwards. Horrific. What I remember as a kid was when the Olympics would come around, they wouldn't let the Iranians and the Iraqis walk 
next to each other, their delegations, because in the alphabet, they're right next to each other, but they would separate the athletes. And it was always, I remember as a child, like a little bit weird when the commentators would try to talk around that. (laughs) Ironic because the Olympics supposedly are about world peace and bringing the countries together and all this bullshit, but also that that war was very consciously, intentionally instigated by the U.S. and Britain. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could have a whole podcast about like Middle Eastern and we could, but that would bump people out because just the very little about it. I know bums me out. I mean, it's, it's actually like a really interesting micro example of how much the U S plays with other countries, sovereignties, and then makes them villains or not based on what benefits them. So you know, today we live in a world where the U.S. like hates Iran and Iran is this like big villain, but the U.S. put the current system of power in place in Iran. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of that. And I think it's it's a really important reminder of knowing the long version of history and why that's that's so important. You also seem to, you get around the world a lot. Uh, how many countries have you been to? Do you have a count off the top of your head? Or would you have to like sit there and with a map and total it up? Yeah, I'd, a lot, but I'd a have to, I'd have to total it up, which I also, you know, I'm aware is a big privilege. I have a U.S. passport. I have the time and I, I work in a space that allows me to work. I've traveled, most of my travel has been for work. So I'm I'm lucky. Are there any continents that you have not yet collected? Um, have not been to Australia. I haven't been to much of Asia. No, and you were born in Asia, so I think I think that counts. You've been well, there. I mean, but there's so much more of it. There is so much more of it, yeah. Um, and Antarctica. That one doesn't have people on it that are supposed to be there, so I, I don't ever really count that one. But uh, So I have not been to Africa. I did go to Mauritius last year, which they say is Africa, but that's like saying that you've been to North America when you visit Hawaii. Like to me, it's like not. It's, right. Um, and I've not been to South America, and I intend to rectify these things within the next couple of years. You, I mean, you've got a lot of options. There's, there's a, those are both massive, massive places. So, of all your travels, this is one I like to ask of people that travel. What is the your favorite thing they've eaten from all the places you've been? Give me like a top three. Um, ceviche in Costa Rica for sure. Nice. Um, pepper soup in Liberia. And uh, I don't know. You know what? In Guatemala, we ate really, really well. And I couldn't give you something specific, but all, all of everything that we ate in, in Guatemala. Those are three places I've not yet been. See, I'm I'm getting I'm getting the FOMO. <laughs> Explain to us what exactly an anti-capitalist business coach is and does, please. So I help creatives and creatives broadly defined because I think we're all creative people. Um, I help creatives 
figure out success on their own terms and doing that in a way that doesn't cause more harm that allows you to live on your terms. Um, and in doing so also starts to dismantle systems of oppression under which we are all forced to live and operate. So one of the biggest misconceptions is if you're such an anti-capitalist, why do you want to get paid? And it doesn't mean that I don't want to get paid, that people shouldn't get paid. It means that we get paid fair, that everyone is fairly compensated for their work, that we don't place the value of human life on work, but on its inherent value. Um, and that we build systems around us that support our survival. So things like basic human, basic healthcare and universal income and housing and things like that, that we should not have to work to earn our, our right to live. As a very intelligent person, of course, you realize that you are totally swimming upstream against society with those goals. How do you stay positive knowing that there are so many people who either don't care or are actively working against what you are working for? This is where I disagree. And I think the narrative that what I'm talking about and asking for is so radical and impossible is actually a, a white supremacist, capitalistic, patriarchal narrative. And that's how it wins, right? The idea that like this thing could never happen is how we don't even fight to make it happen. The reality is a lot of people agree with me and a lot of people are actively creating alternative economies, alternative communities, different ways of working where this is happening. And so just because it's not as as loud or as mainstream as like the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's of the world doesn't mean that this isn't a thing that people want. And I, I don't think it's as upstream as it as it as most people kind of assume that it is. I think the challenge is that people feel either powerless and how to make that happen. They just don't know or the pressure of living under capitalism where you're struggling to pay your bills and pay your rent and find, you know, this, that, and the other then doesn't leave people with much capacity to work, to dismantle that system because they're in survival mode all the time. But I, I want to push back against the idea that, Oh, it's so impossible because it's not, it's hap like it's happening. People are doing it. So part of that is your education around negotiation and the first time I heard you speak was at CPOC. It wouldn't have been last year, even the year before last, CPOC 2021. And that was a conversation I've never actually sat down and thought about. And as I listened to you talk about negotiation, I realized, oh, I've been doing it wrong my entire life. Uh, now, since you get paid for that work, I do not want you to, to like give the course. But can you give like a 30-second or a 60-second summary of why that's important to you to, to teach people better negotiation skills? So it's a, it's a power shift, right? So most of us in traditional negotiation feel like we have no power and we're just so lucky to, to have a job or get the offer and we got to take whatever we can get. The reality of it is once you realize that you're offering something that they can't get from anybody else but you, right? Your unique thing 
then you can start to negotiate for what's worth your time. And if we start to think about negotiation beyond just cash value, then it opens up all kinds of possibility where you can get what you need. This isn't like, oh, please pay me because I have to pay my bills. It's you're going to pay me because I'm giving you skills, knowledge, expertise, this, that, and the other. And employers need that. So it's a way, you know, I think oftentimes we again, we feel so powerless. And so negotiation is a form of self-care, is advocacy, but it's also a way of balancing out the power a little bit. I like that. I can tell that you have these conversations a lot because your thoughts are organized, reasonable, and (laughs) really polished. Um, I have these conversations a lot. True professional. What, What kind of conversations do you not often have? Like I, really, I would love to talk to you about something completely weird that you're unprepared for, but I feel like such a thing probably does not exist. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that people, when they see me, especially if they, their first in interactions with me or through like social media, where it's like very serious and I'm you know, people tell me I'm aggressive, which I have issue with, but whatever, like real deep down, I'm a, I'm a softy. Like, let's talk about real housewives. That's my guilt. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but like, that's my guilty pleasure. Let's talk about polyamory. Let's talk about, like, there's just all these things and part of, sorry, um, they should be gone. So if y'all, that's the gardeners, welcome to, you know, still in a, still in a pandemic working from home living. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I'm, there's like a goofy, fun, silly side of me where we could talk about like superficial and I don't think that people often see that side of me. Well, I saw it because I got to spend 90 minutes with you and push in a dog park or near a dog park. But yeah, it's like, uh, it's a good reminder that professionals don't always have to be on. Right. And you know what? I, I Especially when, when I watch the stuff that you do with Stowe, because you guys are friends, more of your warm, more of the warmth in your personality comes out in those conversations than, uh, I don't get the aggressive thing though. That's, you know, I, th- I think the aggressive thing is because I'm, I have really clear boundaries and I don't like, there's no space for like white supremacy in my life. You can leave your misogyny at home. I'm quick to name it. I'm quick to call it like, and I think it makes people uncomfortable. So it's a lot easier to call me aggressive rather than for people to explore their own like internalized. So um, that's cool right? It's like part of being a woman of color in these spaces. But yeah, no, I, I, I think you do see it with on office hours um, with me and Stowe. I always tell him like our pre, we should record our pre-conversations because that is really funny, but Stowe isn't there yet. So it's fine. Oh. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to ask you two questions that I ask every guest and we'll just save them. You, you can answer them again when Stowe's on, but I want to ask you, so you know I'm a musician, and the overwhelming majority of my guests are also musicians, which is why this is a question that's it's a, it's a good ask. Think back as far as you can remember in your youth. What was the first song you can remember hearing? Ooh. There are Persian songs from, like, way, way back in the day. Um, there's an artist named Faramaz Osef. Um, I remember him 
Um, but you know, the first first songs, my mom used to sing like Persian nursery rhymes to us. And those are probably my first like musical memories. Can you still sing them? No. If I uh, if I heard it, it would like come back. It's like in the in the emotional memory, but no. Fair enough. I wouldn't ask you to sing anyway, uh, unless you were comfortable doing that. Because you didn't say that you were a singer. So not a singer. What did your childhood smell like? That one I stole, but I like to ask that one. What did my childhood smell like? Um Persian food, turmeric, and onions. Because that's so, like the so delicious is what you're saying. Yeah, food. It smelled like food. It's a good question. And then I can tell you, middle school smelled like Bath and Body Works, Country Apple Spray, because <laughs> we all had those like little spray bottles after gym class. Um, that's a really distinct smell. Fruity, fruity and festive. So speaking of Persian food, I don't think I've ever actually been to a Persian restaurant. You recommended me one while I was out there. Around. I did go, but I'm going to tell you something that um, you did not tell me that it was uh, a Jewish run Persian restaurant. Yes, I did. Did yes. you? Because I knew that you were Jewish, but I went on Yom Kippur and <laughs> they were not open. <laughs> Of course, like I, I, so I must have not internalized that because I went, I was like, I, I was like, I'm going to go get this delicious Persian food. And as you know, the Uber driver is going to the neighborhood and I'm seeing folks out really nicely dressed walking home from the synagogue. And I'm like, oh, this, this Iranian restaurant's in the middle of the Jew. Oh, and then, then, it, then I put it together. And when I got there, of course they were not open because they were all out observing uh, atonement day. So I ended up having sushi that day instead. So I have homework on my next LA trip is to actually get out there and visit them while they're open. Yeah, no, that's also probably on me because I'm I'm probably told you they're likely closed on Shabbat, but I don't know when the holidays are. Like, I, that's not my thing. I don't I don't believe. I don't practice. Um, so that could have also. Anyways, I owe you Persian food next time you come. I I was excited too, and then yeah, um, nice neighborhood. Like, I mean, I walked around a little bit. It's very quiet on Yom Kippur, other than people going from synagogue back to home or whatever, whatever gathering they're going to. Uh, some folks looked at me a little funny. I don't think there's a lot of uh, black folk ever in that neighborhood. Um, the sushi place was really good, though. I wish I remembered what it was called. But L.A. is I like the diversity out there. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. How long how long have you been in L.A.? I grew up here. So we when we left Iran, we we left like I said we left as refugees. We went from Iran to Aust Austria, um, and then Austria, New York for a brief bit, and then L.A. And so I grew up here. When I turned eighteen, I looked at a map and I was like, "How far away can I get?" Ended up at UC Santa Cruz, which was like I knew from the time I was six that like college was my out. I had been planning my escape for as long as I could. Um, and then, so I went to Santa Cruz and then I just got further and further and further and further away. And then, um, after I was living in Liberia, when Ebola hit and so came back to the U S after that. Um, and I've been kind of in and out since then, but I've been back in LA for almost 10 years now. What kind of work were you doing in Liberia? 
I was so initially I was out there to do uh, post conflict work with former child soldiers. Whoa, um, that's and, heavy. And, well, so my background is in is in peace building with perpetrators of violence, uh, primarily with like gang members. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Liberia. And then I met this rapper um, through the organization that I was working with. They're like, oh, this is like Tupac of Liberia. And I was like, y'all can't just say that. Like Tupac, like I'm from, you can't just call people Tupac. But he he was that guy and he was political. And so long story short, I got peer, peer, peer pressured into managing him. And I was like, I don't know anything about business let alone music business and trying to overthrow capitalism. Like, what are you all talking about? But they peer pressured me and I became the first music manager in Liberia. And I, I like the program I was on ended and I stayed to manage this guy. And we did a bunch of like entertainment education work and just, um, but that was my kind of how I got into music. So the roundabout way. Yes. I it, I was never like, oh, when I grow up, I want to, you know, manage a rapper and produce a festival, like not in my periphery at all. But in some ways, I think it's still what I always wanted to do was create a space for people to connect and to make the world a better place. And that for sure is what I'm doing. It's just the method is different than than how I thought I would be doing it. Talk about the putting festivals together thing. So um, when I was in Liberia, we, you know, artists would do these like album releases and it was, it would come and go and there was nothing memorable about it. And so we're like, all right, here we have an opportunity to work with the country's most popular artists, but why not create something that will attract other people? What can we do to build a footprint? And so I was like, Let's do a let's do a festival. And when I tell you we did that fest, twenty thousand people over two days. I think I put forty artists on different stages with no money, no budget. Um, and then we did it again. Um, and so that's what it was. Like we we could and we did, and there was a space, and we did it. Um, and so then when I came back to the States, I was introduced to Last Name Good, who was trying to do an independent festival for artists who were good performers, good people, um, but who might not have the kind of vanity metrics behind it. And so uh, Good and I connected, and that's how we started Den Music Fest, which is all about new music discovery. And how do you get, you know, in a world where we're all trying to hack the algorithm and, get, you know, how can we, and we're all again, busy because we're trying to survive under capitalism. Um, we wanted to make new music discovery really easy for fans while also creating a space that centers artists. So that's how Den Music Fest came about. Are you still in that space? In the festival space? Yeah. 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 So when COVID hit, we went virtual. Um, so we'd started to do like a monthly series and um, like at home concerts and things like that. And then this year, actually, we're going to go live again um, with our first live Den Music Fest. But I love, I love this. I love connecting artists to each other. I love finding good music that other people haven't heard of. And then being like, okay, you could listen to like 
so-and-so or here's three artists who are equally good that are less people and where your support will go further yeah it's it's one of the most fun things i do that's something i love too and i feel like people who really care about music we all do that right you're out hanging out with your friends if you've heard something really cool that week especially if it's an independent artist that nobody knows you're gonna be like oh guess what i listened to this week we all do it uh you just kind of made a really cool I don't want to say side hustle because I read enough from you to know we're not supposed to have side hustles. Um, <laughs> but you made a cool business out of it, so that's awesome. So you know, okay, can I can I say something about you that? You can because, say anything you want. Like that's the why you're here to say what you want. Like I, I think a lot of us identify with our job titles, and and when I think about the work that I do, it's not about the job title. I want to work on whatever project excites me right? Or that I can be passionate about. So it's not so much like different side hustles, right? Which is a different, right? Which is, yo, you got to have like eight different businesses and six LLCs. Like we don't need to do all that. But I think having a diverse, uh, like array of creative outlets and projects you want, we should all be doing that because no one wants to do the same thing every, like, I don't know, to me that's, so that's, that's just my little distinction, the difference between like projects and hustles. I dig it. And you are hireable because of the all the business acumen you picked up, especially around creatives. Uh, if a creative person needs some business guidance, you are hireable for that. What yeah. kind, what is the ideal client? So if, if I if I have a musician buddy listening and they're looking for a way to I don't want to say attack their business because that sounds super uh Help their business, right? Like I tell I tell artists, um make a product or make a song, put it on the internet, not a business plan. So where I come in is I will help you figure out what your business plan is, how to find your audience. Everyone is not your audience. I hate to break it to you. It's so true. They're not. But also how to do that, you know, artists who tell me like, oh, I hate social media. Fine. You don't have to be on social media, but what can we do instead? So really helping artists figure out goals, strategies, tactics. My ideal client, honestly, is anyone who's ready to do the work. Obviously, the values alignment is important to me. I get people in my DMs all the time. And all I got to do is look at like three tweets. And I'm like, oh, you're misogynistic. You and I are, I'm going to pass on you. I say no to clients. So the ideal client is someone who's ready to do the work, but who also has that values, values alignment. So not jerks. Yeah, don't be, a, I'm not trying to make a jerk successful. Yeah. Really, that's uh, a shortcut for general life is just don't be a jerk and and you will get along better with people. So where can I send people to find you if other than Twitter? But yeah, we'll start with Twitter. But where, where can people find you? So it's Nora Rahimian on everything. N-O-R-A-R-A-H-I-M-I-A-N. Um, there's also a newsletter where I share a lot of good information. I never spam you, which I'm sure all that will be in the show notes, uh, with my link tree and things like that. Um, my, my DMS are always open. You can email me Nora Rahimian at Gmail. Like I, you know, we started this conversation talking about the social part. And I really mean that I, I want to connect to people because we're nothing without our community. That is fantastic. I know you're super busy, so thank you for taking the time to talk to me and and the guests. And let's badger Stowe, and and we'll get you guys on on one together. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but we'll uh, 
Well, we'll probably talk about office hours, but we'll find something else to talk about too. Still, still has some stories too. We'll, yeah, it'll be fun. But thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thanks once again to Nora Rahimian for taking time from what is a very busy schedule to have a conversation with me on the record officially. You folks out there, especially if you're an artist, go look up Nora and the work that she does, and perhaps uh, there would be a good business fit there. Thank you also, dear listeners, for listening to me today on this podcast. Coming up later this week, meaning Friday on the You Could Be My Aramis podcast, a band. That's right, a full band, like multiple people. See how I managed to uh, wrangle them on Friday morning. <laughs>